Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. When Cherie Moore joined Victoria Police, she had to seek permission to get married. The former sergeant and crime scene investigator graduated in 1986, spent time in suburban stations including Sandringham, Russell Street and City Patrol, where she had a front row seat to the Queen Street shootings involving Frank Vitkovic. Cherie worked at Dandenong and did temp duties at the CIB, DSG, AIS and Drug Squad. She set up Project Claridon at the Narry Warren Crime Desk, which was a one-stop shop for crime reporting and forensics in property crime. After 37 years, Cherie's recently just retired. Hi Cherie and a big warm welcome to the Crime Couch. Thank you. How's retirement going? Loving it. Absolutely loving it. I've been able to go back to my youth and start doing things that I used to do. Now owning a horse and acquired adopt via adoption, another one. So yeah, plenty of time now taken up by that, which is great. Why did you decide to get out of the job, Cherie? Did you know when it was time? They always say you know when it's time. Yeah, so the last five years for me were pretty difficult to try and juggle that managerial hat and also the welfare and care and concern for the members that that were below me. And the job was no longer the one that resembled the one I had joined. A little bit too political for my liking. A lot of words that were catchphrases like welfare but not backed up and I started to find that I was getting angry starting to find that very disgruntled uh, easily annoyed which was not great for my members because I had a, a little bit of a tendency to perhaps take that out on them which was not fair and a little dose of PTSD thrown in in the mix I mean you, you don't do this job without coming away with a little bit of uh, mental scarring so it was I just thought I'm approaching 60 and it's time it sounds like you've got a really clear idea of your own mental health and there were things that were pushing you to make that decision. Absolutely. I had really bad breakdown in 2016. I had six to eight weeks off work with PTSD and it all started with a slideshow of every dead body I'd been through, been to, going through my head at three o'clock in the morning and I couldn't shut it down. And I recall getting up to go to work that next day without any sleep and I got halfway down the street and just burst into tears and knew that I couldn't, couldn't even walk in the door. So that sort of started six weeks, six to eight weeks of working with a psychologist and trying to find myself and, and clear what was going on upstairs. And, you know, I've done it to a certain degree. Still have little flashbacks and, you know, you don't walk away with, without any baggage. So, yeah, but I'm better now and, you know, a lot more in tune with what's going on upstairs and I find a lot of uh, external things to do to to take the heat out of what's going on in the, in the head. So, yeah. 
It's a very challenging role and I think people when they join have no idea. As you say, you don't do the job without it taking some form of a toll. Why did you initially join Victoria Police, Cherie? Well, way back in 1986, you had to be five foot four to join as a woman and I'm five foot one. And there was a a guy who took Vicpol to uh, the Equal Opportunity board because he was under the males um, mac, uh, minimum height and one and at that stage I'd graduated as a primary school teacher and was working as an insurance underwriter because I decided I didn't really like teaching children and the opportunity arose to because I removed that height restriction I thought oh, let's see let's have a go so I I surprised myself with the physical because I was a smoker back then, as most people were, and got myself fit and got over that six-foot vaulting horse, which was quite surprising. But I had horses back in the day, so I was able to jump on a 17-hand horse from the ground. So I had that good upper body strength anyway. And that's where it all started. So it wasn't some altruistic desire to help people or anything like that. It was just a challenge. But then, you know, when I graduated, I then started to love what it was that I was doing. So, um, and I've always had a bit of an interest in the law. So when we're at the academy, you know, I I really got right into that because I enjoyed it when I was in um, HSC back then. So, yeah. Do you remember your first brief? It involved undersized abalone. Yes, so I was a trainee at Sandringham and a beautiful sunny day and we were plain clothes and we were executing duties in relation to the Wildlife Act. And a lot of people on the foreshore catching crabs, and these things called abalone, which I had never, ever heard of, had no idea what they looked like. And, um, yeah, we uh, we collared a couple of vet- Vietnamese gents who were fishing for abalone. And, yeah, I copped the brief <laughs> with no idea what it was I was doing. It was quite, quite funny. Was it initially a bit of a baptism of fire for you in the early days? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was an only child and just, you know, lived a sort of semi-sheltered life and just, you know, as a a teenager, spent most of my time up in a horse paddock and, and riding horses and didn't really have a huge exposure to the world. I mean, I worked at a Maya cafeteria at Knox City, so that was my baptism of fire with customers and angry people and stuff like that. But I back then would never have thought that that would go hand in hand with being a police officer. The fact that you develop those skills to be able to talk people down who are angry or or whatever. So, yeah. You also, um, Cherie, were introduced to our mental health facilities at the time, i.e. La Rundle. I remember that place. Mm-hmm. My maternal grandmother was a psych nurse who used to work at La Rundle and she would tell some amazing stories about that facility and they weren't like in hindsight they're actually quite barbaric stories in the treatment of people then who suffered from mental health issues but um, whenever you had to transport somebody out to La Rundle, you had to be very careful who you dealt with because sometimes you'd go to hand over 
your patient and you'd be handing them over to a patient who was wearing a white coat. It was very difficult to tell who worked there and who was a resident there. They were all a little bit out there. So it was, yeah, very interesting times. I think you had to be a little bit, a bit like your client to work in a facility like that. So, yeah, quite bizarre. Very mind-boggling and very difficult to also imagine putting yourself or putting someone even that you were supposed to be responsible for in a place like that. Mm, absolutely. You know, you, you're dealing with people who are genuinely sick. And I can say this now with, the, you know, 37 years of hindsight, looking at the way the stigma that's attached to mental health and, and what it was like back then compared to now. Most people today suffer from some degree of mental health, depression, anxiety. Um, so, yeah, it was, yeah, daunting times back then. Uh, and, you know, you've got the Q cottages in there as well with people incarcerated because they've got Down syndrome. Just awful. Very horrendous and really challenging times, particularly if as a police member working in that area. How difficult, Cherie, was it to be a female in the job in the late 1980s? Well, you definitely had to be one of the boys. So, you know, a bit of a potty mouth, get in there and, and get rough, you know, hands-on, which you would expect to do anyway as a police officer. I mean, it's an asexual profession so if someone wants to fight you they don't care whether you're male or female they're going to fight you because you're wearing a uniform and you had to be able to step up and 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 be able to do what the guys did and try and be as strong as the guys was that daunting at five foot one? Oh, absolutely i but i did find i am well known for having a very sharp tongue and I've only, in 37 years, only ever assaulted twice and was able to talk people down. They say that if you can talk someone off out of off a ledge, you know, you, you're safe. I don't want to get hurt. I want to go home at the end of the day. So, yeah, so I've been able to talk to people in the way that they speak to me. So if someone, you know, wants to curse and carry on, I'll curse and carry on back at them so that we're on the same page. So, yeah, only twice in 37 years was assaulted. So I think that's a pretty good record. Tell me about working in City Patrol, Sheree. This involved court security. What did that involve? And did you encounter any infamous prisoners? Not any infamous prisoners, but I do recall a really, really funny incident at the Supreme Court. So I was court orderly and way back then the tip staffs were very, very old. And I was sitting up the back uh, of the court and bear in mind, I'm probably 23 years of age, so still essentially a kid. And I'm watching this tip staff who's sitting immediately below uh, the judge at a murder trial, his head is getting closer and closer and closer to the desk that he's sitting behind and he's falling asleep. And next minute his head just slams straight into the table and I just got the giggles and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking this is so unprofessional. Here I am in full uniform and I've got the giggles and I had to leave and anybody that knows the Supreme Court knows that even if you're outside in the corridors, it echoes. So all they could hear was me in the corridor, hysterical, <laughs> laughing at the, the side of this poor old tip, tip staff, 
that smacked his head on the, on the desk. And the, the funniest part was the judge sort of stood up and looked over just to check on his colleague to make sure that he was okay. It was hilarious. But, yeah, no, I didn't have any um, duties where I was. there was someone infamous. I think I was pretty lucky in that regard. So, yeah. You were involved in the Queen Street shootings with Frank Vitkovic. Can you recall that day? Yep. So I was working at um, City Patrol and on point duty down at the intersection of Flinders and Queen Street when the job for um, shots being fired came up on the radio. And uh, I was a trainee back then. And the guy that I was working with said, right, let's go. And I had no idea. Like, I had barely been to the city, so I did not know landmarks. So we just took off up Queen Street. Now, if you know, it's all uphill. So we ran all the way up the hill and you can hear the cracks of, of the this gunfire. And it's quite bizarre to think you're actually running towards it, not away from it. And I remember standing, uh, I, we, I can't remember the, the intersection that we we're at, but it was one of the little, was like a little Burke or little whatever, and uh, just standing there, not knowing which building, not knowing whether we were going to get fired upon, trying to stop pedestrian traffic going up. And at that point in my career, I realised that some members of the public have got no clue. There were people wanting to go up towards where the gunfire was to go to their office to get their keys to go home. And it's like, if you do that, you may not go home. Mm, mm. It was quite bizarre. Um, so that lasted probably, I don't know, an hour until uh, Frank plummeted to his death from the Australia Post building. And he was probably the third body I think I'd ever came across. So I remember having an interesting conversation with the then coroner, Hal Hallenstein, in relation to what had happened and the demise of Frank. But that I still hear the gunshots. It's just not something that you ever forget. Would you have got counselling after that or didn't they have that in those days? No such thing. The counselling was the good old uh, night shift wind down, which got canned, rightly rightly so, because of the amount of alcohol that was consumed. And But it was such a great informal opportunity for people to debrief and debrief with like-minded people who had likely experienced the same thing or who were in the same event absolutely absolutely and you know you're talking to members that you know 30 odd years vintage or 20 years or whatever and you learnt how to cope with a lot of what was going on without having to seek professional help because you're talking about it it was normal so you didn't feel like you know you were some two-headed monster when well, it's your way of processing it isn't it absolutely absolutely well thanks Cherie we can talk more in our next catch-up on the crime couch thanks so much for joining me today thank you thanks for joining me I'm Rochelle Jackson and I look forward to your company next time on the crime